DSA San Francisco's The Priority Podcast. Through this podcast series, you'll hear education sessions and reports from our priority campaigns. In each episode, you'll also hear more about how you can get involved to fight for the socialist transformation in San Francisco, across the country, and around the world. I'm Andy Morales, and today I will be interviewing San Francisco Supervisor and DSA member Dean Presson on the Empty Homes Tax Campaign. If you feel inspired by what you hear and want to get involved in our campaign work, please check out the campaign site www.philemptyhomes.com, where you can register for signature gathering events or donate. In order to get this measure on the ballot, we need to get 14,000 signatures by this July, 2022. So if you can, please come join us for Signature Gathering. Now, without further ado, I give you Dean Presson. Hey everybody, this is Andy Morales from DSASF here on The Priority, and today we have a very special guest joining us to talk about the new empty home tax campaign, San Francisco supervisor, civil rights attorney, founder of Tenants Together, DSASF's very own Dean Preston. Dean, we are very happy to have you today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's great to be with you, and this is actually a week where we have a little break from hearing, so it's a perfect time to talk about uh, something that's coming to the ballot. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we could just jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about the empty home tax measure? Like what are its specifics? What will it do? Sure. Yeah. So this is something that has been talked about in San Francisco for, I don't know, at least 10 years, you know, and, and everyone always talks about, look at all these vacant properties just sitting there and we got to get these properties activated. We got all these people don't have housing and then we have all these empty homes sitting there right we got to do something about it and then it's really complicated to do and so you know so it when i came into office a couple years ago this was like a really high priority was for us to tackle this so we we actually commissioned a study from the uh, budget and legislative analysts to study the problem turned out over forty thousand units in san francisco are sitting vacant growing proportion of them are just real estate speculators buying and holding property. So it seemed like the perfect time to like really get moving on this. It's been really amazing seeing DSA step up and just take the lead on on getting this to the ballot and just the whole conversation really around like we always talk about all these housing units. You know, we don't talk about homes and, you know, and these aren't just like shares a stock or like some investment portfolio for some real estate speculators, right? These are places people can live. And I think that's fundamentally what the empty homes tax is about. So it's, it's actually providing a disincentive for these speculators that just buy property and hold it. And they're basically treating it like, like a share of stock or something that they're just holding on to it in five years when the market's right, they're going to sell it instead of looking at it as a place people can live. So the, the real point of this empty homes tax is get these things rented out, get these things used, or if they're going to stay vacant for a while, 
uh, let's tax the hell out of them and, and, uh, and use the money for rental subsidies and to buy up vacant buildings. So 40,000 have been kept off the market just as like a form of investment for them. Uh, housing that could be, you know, we obviously have a huge yeah. homelessness problem. And one, and, and, and one in 10. So it's not just 40,000 because, you know, so, some of the people watching this might say, well, what's that? You know, maybe they live in New York or something and they're like, well, ah, 40,000 doesn't seem that big or something. I mean, in our housing stock in San Francisco, right, that, that's one in 10 units. Jesus. So just think about that, right? <laughs> it, 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 one in 10 units is just sitting there empty. And the, the, the largest share that's growing, so the, the, the uh, BLA report, Budget Legislative Analyst Report, is fascinating. We had a hearing on it because they studied this in detail over the last uh, decade. And what's the largest growing part of that vacancy is, is stuff that is, uh, is clearly the real estate investors and speculators. So in other words, the, the natural vacancies that just occur in a market, right? Like you know, something's put on the market, it doesn't rent the next day, or maybe it does, and someone moves in two months later, like those kind of mark, those kind of vacancies in San Francisco, we're actually lower than other cities, right? Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to stuff that people are actually going to live in, buy to move into, or they're going to rent it out and, and live there, like those rental vacant, th those vacancy rates are not rising. And they're not that big in San Francisco. And yet, our vacancy rate is going up. And it's the stuff that speculators are just buying and holding. Yeah. And, and is there a way that the measure uh, also focuses more on those uh, uh, empty units that are being used as investment as opposed to those that are just like, say, landlords like seeking, uh, 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 trying to get it filled? Uh, but it's yeah. having a hard time. Yeah, like how, how does the... I mean, there, there, there's a bunch of ways it does that. I mean, one is it's got exemptions for whatever you whatever you can think of that would be like, the normal part of just like, you know, someone buys a home and then they pull some permits and they want to like fix the bathroom before, right? Once they get their permits, like they'd be exempt for, you know, the time where their permit was was out and th things okay. like that, or, or, you know, any number of scenarios, right? It's like someone, you know, a relative, someone lived there and then they passed away and, and the estate's dealing with the property for you. None, none of those folks are going to be taxed under the okay. tax, right? Every version, the, you know, Vancouver's got one of these, like they all exempt these kind of situations. The other thing is, it's not like you don't get taxed for like every day it's vacant. It's got to be vacant for six months out of the year, right? So in San Francisco, I'm sorry, but it, like if you're a landlord and you cannot rent out your place in six months, like you're just not, either your price is too high <laughs> or you're not talking to the right people, right? It's like people are lined up to be able to rent. You know, there's so much demand. So, but again, you know, if there's a couple months, few months while it's marketing or someone moves out and you want to re the landlord repaints it or like none of those people would be paying the tax. The other thing is we, we targeted, you know, the, the bigger, the bigger buildings, because that's where the real estate speculation and the buying and holding is happening in San Francisco. And, you know, some people, have, you know, squawk about that, like, why aren't you taxing, you know, empty single family homes? It would be a great question if we were like in Stockton or in Modesto or in LA County, where Blackstone and all these big companies have actually bought up thousands of single family homes, then absolutely. I mean, if someone was doing an empty homes tax there, I would think they'd want to go after that, that housing stock too. Here, it's just not, I mean, I've been doing this work for like, you know, over 20 years in San Francisco, the big players 
have not targeted the single family home market at all. Um, and so, you know, so this is for three units or more. So it gets at the smaller apartment buildings that are held completely empty, usually where they've done mass evictions like the Ellis Act and other types of evictions. But it also targets these, all this, uh, these empty condos, you know, you go to some of these buildings that have been built in the last five years, you know, you get all these like Yimby saying, build more housing, market rate housing, they build it all and it just sits empty. You know, so so part of it's also like to get at that that housing. So you know, I mean, it's it's targeted in that way, but it's also pretty. Um, it, it's targeted but bold in terms of like the the actual penalties. If someone mm -hmm. keeps a building empty and they do it for multiple years, they're going to be paying a ton under this. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a, a lot of the specific conditions of the housing market, like within SF, have been accounted for, and it's it's uh, the measure has been uh, formatted to meet those uh, conditions. That way, you are targeting the right uh, the right home, the the right buildings, the right homes. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I look. I think the biggest targets that the, the where the problem has really existed in San Francisco are two types of of, of properties. There are like apartment buildings, like in District 5, right? I mean, I can think right off the top of my head of like three apartment buildings that have just been empty for five years or more. They're just completely empty. They're just holding. Uh, two, of, two of them, I know the details. They kicked everyone out. And they're, and they're waiting for the 10-year period to run. Like, so they're literally taking housing to house working-class San Franciscans, long-time residents, Right kick everyone out, either through buyouts, harassment, Ellis Act evictions, whatever, get the building empty and then just sit on it and, and one day sell it. So, so that's happening, you know, yeah. and, and those buildings are like a huge problem and like we got to deal with it there. And then, as I mentioned, it's also a lot of these like newer construction condos where you just go by these buildings and it's like, half empty they're either like second or third homes for someone who's never there or they're just you know investments for someone who wants to hold them for a few years and then sell, sell them to the next person absolutely atrocious uh you're, you're bringing up a lot of really interesting uh points i think maybe two things i kind of want to uh look at first um yeah so it seems like the hope is that in doing this empty homes tax, do you anticipate it making more homes available on the market? And if so, how? And then the other side is like with, with all this with all this tax money, is there a plan for it to go towards something in, in particular? What, what would happen with the, the taxed money? Yeah, so the goal is it definitely activate a bunch of things that would be empty, right? Mm. And then that because of the tax, people rent them out. I mean, it, it changes, like I mentioned an eight unit building in my district, right? That's been empty yeah. now for six years, I think, right? Yeah. So under the empty homes tax, they would be paying, it's a graduate, it increases, you know, every year it doubles over, you know, from oh, year, wow. one to year two, year two to year three. I mean, at this point, this, this building, they'd be paying, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a year just in taxes <laughs> on that. That changes the business calculus, right? Yeah. Suddenly it doesn't look so good. Yeah. The goal is to make a million bucks on the building and for the next <laughs> 10 years, you're paying a hundred thousand, right? So yeah, it'll definitely change behavior with some folks. And we saw that. So Vancouver, you know, had an empty homes tax and, and they, you know, they saw within the first two years 
you know, a, a huge number of properties, you know, the vacancies dropped, right? And so that, that's the first goal and that'll happen here. The, the BLA estimated that in the first couple of years with a Vancouver type tax, we'd be looking at, at about uh, over 4,000 units wow. of housing that were vacant becoming occupied, right? So it's going to have that impact. I mean, nobody knows exactly how much, right? Is it going to be you know, 3,000, 5,000, who knows, right? But it's gonna be, no question, thousands of units that would have sat empty if this passes, they will get rented out or owner occupants will move in there. So that, you know, that that's that's one, uh, you know, huge part of this, right? And that's really the primary goal. But we know that there's also people who are just gonna pay the tax, right? Like yeah, they're, yeah. they're so well off that they don't really <laughs> care or they think they're gonna make so much money uh, on this thing that they're just gonna pay it. And, um, you know, and there the estimates are, you know, again, with, with a Vancouver style tax applied in San Francisco would be around uh, $38 million a year. It could be lower. It could be significantly higher. Again, there's a trade-off, right? If yeah. lots of people end up renting out the place, so people move in and have homes, there's lower, lower tax revenue. So I always say, this is one of these taxes, like we're happy not to collect the tax, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's like, great. But um but if we do collect it, it is a, um, what's known as a special tax as opposed to a general tax, which means that the revenue is dedicated. And, and um, it's split 50-50 under the empty homes tax. 50% of it goes to, uh, to rental subsidies mm. for low-income households uh, and for seniors. Okay. 50% of it goes to a new fund that's being set up for the purpose of buying vacant properties. So a lot of people come to me and they say, well, you know, why aren't you just expropriating these? Like look what's happening, you know, here in Berlin or other, I mean, <laughs> you know, trust me, I was looked into these things. I don't think, we're, you know, I don't, I don't think in our uh, overly, uh, extreme capitalist society some of those things would would uh, stand up in court but what we're doing here is we're saying so it's not like a forced sale right yeah. but we're setting up a fund where if one of these owners of this 10 unit building they don't want it anymore now they're gonna have to start paying the, <laughs> the tax yeah you can use the tax money from the vacancy tax for the city to buy the building so it's a great way to acquire more social housing and get a, a new social housing program rolling That'd be fantastic. It's potential social housing. That's yep. that's amazing. Yep. And and I think it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, Vancouver, and it sounds like you are also uh, you've you've thought a bit about like what's happened in different European countries. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how this has worked in other cities, like uh, where it's been effective, where maybe it's not been as effective? Yeah, I mean, look, most places are are like San Francisco's been, where they've talked about a vacancy tax forever and not done it. It's it's just because you got to get into the weeds of making sure you do it right, and it's and it's yeah. complicated to do. Um, you know, a few other places have done so. Vancouver, kind of for for North America, Vancouver took the lead, um, and then and then Oakland and Washington D.C. have different forms of, of vacancy tax. There's not much else um, that, that really does this. And they're, all, and they're a little different. So, so, you know, we're under some limits in, in California and in San Francisco that are different than other places, right? So Vancouver, for example, can actually set the tax based on a percentage of the value of the property, right? Ah, so okay. so they, they, and they charge a, a percentage of the property each year it's vacant. 
you know, that sounds great, but we have this thing called Prop 13, right? Which says we, as a local city, don't get to set taxes on property based on the value of the property. So we can't do that. So some of the taxes may look like, you know, the way the empty homes tax is structured, it, it may have a similar impact, but you can't, you can't actually structure it that way because of uh, California state law. And, you know, and then if you look at other cities, um, and, and well, I should say a lot of the European approach is the same thing, right? Like the courts here are, are not very friendly to things that seem like you're, you're either seizing property or like forcing property owners into a government program, those kind of things. Gotcha. So, you know, the empty homes tax as it's drafted, clearly like it navigates all those legal things to still land on a strong tax that's going to strongly incentivize you know, people to rent out their property or disincentivize holding it empty yeah. um, and use the revenue for, for things that the city can use the revenue for. And I think it's significantly stronger than like the Oakland one. Some people have pointed to Oakland and, and Oakland has some big differences, including like ours is a per unit tax um, in Oakland. Like in Oakland, I, my understanding is you can have like a 10 unit building. If one unit is occupied, it's an occupied building. Like they look, they're looking at the parcel. So they were much more focused on like vacant parcels of land and hundred percent vacant properties. They weren't as focused on what we're experiencing in San Francisco, which is this, you know, unit by unit. And, and I mean, I just talked to someone yesterday at, or day before yesterday at a rally who was telling me about his building, he's in a 10 unit building, five units have been empty for four years, right? So like in Oakland, they wouldn't pay anything on that property as a tax. Under the empty homes tax, they'd be hit for each of the five empty units with an escalating tax year after year. So, you know, some of these things, and I get it, like any anytime you try to craft policy, people are gonna think, you know, People criticize this one saying it's too strong and it's too weak at the same time. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's fair, especially like for people who are outside San Francisco's market who don't get that. It's like, these are not like cookie cutter things. Like a vacancy tax in San Francisco is gonna look different than you know, a vacancy tax in another city, in another state, especially, yeah. or another city or another country. And that's because it's just like, you're under all these legal limits on how you assess the tax amount and making sure you're not doing it in some way that the court's going to look at it and say, "Hey, you're confiscating this person's property effectively." And you know, hell, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, many folks in, in DSH after would be fine with that, but the courts will throw it out the day after. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we all pass it. So uh, this, this is, you know, this is pretty strong as far as vacancy taxes go. No, that's that's fantastic, and uh, it's really helpful to to know how the SF tax is different from uh, Oakland's and specifically like addressing like the number of vacant units within a building. And I think that's a really good point. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us would be on board for uh, pushing to, to confiscate full buildings. The question is practicality here. Yeah. And, and I'd also say that, you know, the other thing that, that DSA really took the lead on, like once I, you know, once I got into office, right, I'd been in office for what, two months before I wrote the, wrote Prop I. Right, yeah. which then the, then the chapter like made a huge priority, doubling the transfer tax yeah. on properties worth ten million dollars or more. So again, we can't tax a property owner based on the value of their property as a city, but we have the absolute right at the time they sell the property to to tax it and to, as a percent of the value. So we did that, and we we didn't just like historically when those changes have happened, it's like 
they go up a quarter of a percent or half a percent. Like we literally doubled the tax, you know? So, you know, the seller of like a $20 million hotel is like paying $1.2 million in tax now. But the part that, that, that folks don't talk about as much, but is a huge part of what uh, we were trying to accomplish with that is that provides an enormous incentive to uh, sellers of high-end properties, of hotels, of apartment buildings to sell to the city for social housing or to nonprofit affordable housing providers for either land trusts, co-ops or affordable housing. Because like I said, some hotel owner with a $20 million building is selling, you know, they can sell it to another hotel owner, private market and pay $1.2 million of tax right now, thanks to Prop I, or they can sell it to the city like we just did at the Gotham Hotel where the city now in my district bought 114 units and is converting them to supportive housing for homeless people, right? Because they saved, like suddenly the whole profit margin is like the city comes in there with revenue, right? We have all this revenue from that tax we got with Prop I. And now we have the next building owner who we don't charge them tax if they sell it to the city or sell it to a profit. So that kind of stuff drives the the market fundamentalists and the free marketeers crazy, right? Because we're actually using <laughs> tax policy, really we're using the tools of this, you know, of this uh, capitalist system here to like actually change the incentive structures so that the city can actually be a buyer and be taking this kind of housing off the speculative market and creating social housing. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's actually with all the depressing stuff going on in our market, uh, it's pretty exciting just in the last couple of years, especially at this MP homes tax passes and yeah. you put together prop I from 2020 and this uh, empty homes tax. Uh, it's it, those are some huge steps forward. That's fantastic. And it seems like they all are starting to lay a foundation to shift everything in the direction that we want in terms of, uh, how we're approaching uh, the, the housing crisis. Like th- these are all working in tandem. And you basically have answered this, but I kind of want to go a little bit more in depth into it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Yimbies, And uh, I-, I do think it's interesting. You know, you, you hear a lot of uh, Yimbies talk about the best way to handle the housing and homelessness crisis is to actually build more houses, right? To remove any uh, legal barriers to housing construction. And it seems to follow the uh, supply and demand logic, right? Uh, if you remove all restrictions to housing construction, more houses can be built. That increases supply and forcing prices of older housing to decrease, something like that. But as you rightfully pointed out, given the fact that there are 40,000 currently unoccupied homes, uh, it's making me have a lot less faith in trusting the the housing market to to do something in, in, uh, that will benefit the actual, like the people, right? The, the working class. So uh, I guess... I, I don't know. It, it, it just, it sounds a lot like the trickle down economics, like BS to me. And um, I don't know, it, it seems like a BS argument. So like, instead of approaching it as like, from the lens of like capitalism, how should we as socialists view, view this problem and how should we be approaching this? Yeah, I, I think as socialists, we should be viewing it the way we view most of these problems, right? That, that the answer doesn't lie with the free market. The free market has created right. the problem. The free market is not going to solve the problem. I mean, in part because the, the free market doesn't want to solve the problem. Like the whole premise of the Yimby thing is 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 such complete nonsense because you know if you ever 
had production at the level where prices plummeted, which you're never going to see in house. They, they wouldn't develop it. Like, you know, like the, the developers do not want to build housing that's going to be affordable to working people, right? It's, it's barring some kind of major subsidies for that, right? So, you know, I, I think the fundamental disconnect is first off, it is trickle down economics. Like, there's no, you know, they try to come up with these different labels for it and they call it filtering and they, you know, it, it, it's trickle down economics, <laughs> you know, the theory is build for those with the most and that somehow that will have some trickle down benefit for, for working class people. And like that hasn't worked historically, uh, is great for developers, is great for people who are going to profit off the market. And frankly, is great for well-off people that want to buy housing, right? And we'll have more housing to choose from. I, th I think what's missing with the, unfortunately, with so much the, the discourse on YIMBYs, and it's not just YIMBYs, it's, it's, it's just, they're just the latest version of the developer, uh, neoliberal kind of corporate Democrat and Republican talking point. Like it's no, yeah. it's, it's they're, they're not saying anything different than what the San Francisco Chronicle has been saying for years, or what developers and the landlord lobby and the California realtors have been saying for years. The only difference is instead of being a bunch of crusty old white people who are rich, they're a bunch of like 20 somethings, maybe 30 somethings. And so they're like a fresh face that the Chronicle and others get to cover as if there's something really new here, you know, and there, and there really isn't, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's the thing. And, and what is missing is just the more honest discussion about who the housing is for, right? And, and, I, and I think that like in, sort of Yimby land, you know, which is mostly Twitter, but, you know, other, <laughs> other little Reddit, Twitter, and other little pockets online. Like, if, if they're being honest, which they're usually not, but if they are, they just, they want more housing for almost exclusively white people who earn, uh, what, 200,000 bucks a year or something, and yeah. who feel, who probably do feel like if there were more condos available, that they might have an easier time getting in on that market. And so if you look at that segment of the market, right, which is housing for people who can buy that million dollar plus property, yeah. um, there's some appeal to just this idea of like, yeah, let's build, you know, lots more units and maybe the price will come in. Now, the truth is it's more complicated than that. I mean, if you build thousands of new condos in Pacific Heights, I believe the cost of living in Pacific Heights or the opportunities to move into Pacific Heights, it will be cheaper, mm -hmm. right? Like if you put 5,000 condos in Pacific Heights where it's all single family, mostly single family homes right now. Yeah. And if you were a millionaire and you wanted to buy a place in Pacific Heights, there'd be more options for you, right? You Maybe you can get your, your condo for like, Two million there instead of spending like four million on a single family home. Like maybe so. Right? It's just, that's the whole housing discourse, right? That's what like Heather Knight and the Chronicles hyperventilating about. That's what like right. It's just like they're only they're not talking about working class people. They're not talking about people of right. color. They're not right. talking about you know retail workers and janitors and like teachers and like none none of those folks are ever going to afford any of this housing they're talking about. That's just a pipe dream. And the fact that the YIMBYs like dress it up in language of equity, is just laughable, right? And so the honest discussion, you know, in, in the sort of YIMBY land, if you want to buy their premise, is the honest discussion is that well-off, mostly white people want more housing options 
in a city where it's expensive to buy and that maybe creating more of those condos instead of that $1.7 million condo, they may be able to score $1.5 million condo. Right. And they want us in elected office to make that our top priority. Right. Does the YIMBY pay 1 million, 1.3 million, 1, like, you know, what exactly do they pay for their condo, right? And at the end of the day, I think as socialists and, and really for like anyone remotely on the left, like that can't be the conversation, right? right? That's right, right. a side conversation. Like, what are we going to do about housing millionaires? And 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 like, <laughs> the market kind of takes care of them, right? Right, um, right. The market fails at making it so a school teacher can live in San Francisco. Right. Right. And so all the attacks on me, even other progressives or, you know, socialists is like, they're all rooted in that, that at the end of the day, we're prioritizing housing that's off the speculative market community land trusts, limited equity co-ops, social housing. If we have to deal with private landlords dealing with you know, rent control, other regulations, those are what makes, that's why there's a working class left in San Francisco, right? Mm. There's, not, there's a working class in San Francisco because we have rent control, because we have some subsidized housing that has you know, been able to withstand the pressures of the market. And then we have you know, some homeowners who bought half a century ago when you right. can still be a working class person and buy in San Francisco, right? right? That's it. And most of that is because of government regulation and because of forced, basically forced affordability, not quote unquote natural, you know, because there's nothing natural about affordability in a capitalist market. Right. And so when people talk about this naturally occurring affordable housing, like that's not a thing in San Francisco. Like that's a thing if you're buying like a shack like three hours outside San Francisco. There is no naturally affordable housing in San Francisco and the real estate industry has made it that way and is committed to keeping it that way. And the only solutions are, uh, are anti-capitalist solutions and getting uh, housing off the private market. Now, again, we know private market housing is going to exist in San Francisco. It's not about like abolishing private market housing. It's about saying like, that's not our priority, right? Mm -hmm. As like a movement, we're about housing, stable housing for the working class of San Francisco, right? right? And the rest of this is just noise. And 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 I'll tell you, you know, Andrew, like one thing that really struck me is like there were 20 chronicle articles in a month about one market rate housing project on Stevenson Street in San Francisco, where the Board of Supervisors upheld a CEQA appeal because they hadn't done their homework on seismic safety, right? So this was like a few hundred units, only 15% of which would be affordable. So the market rate housing project, south of market, right? Yeah. Gentrification project, lots and lots of these. 20 articles from the San Francisco Chronicle. 20. Yeah. At the same time, a coalition of affordable housing advocates, tenant rights groups, and all of labor working with UC Berkeley came out with a study called Housing Our Workers, a two year, mm. you know, a result of two years of research and analysis, finding that only 6% of workers in San Francisco could afford housing in San Francisco without being severely cost burdened, right? Jesus, yeah. Huge report, huge yeah. report. Hearing at the Board of Supervisors on the report, no mention <laughs> in the same month, not one mention. 
in the San Francisco Chronicle, the paper, you know, right. leading paper in San Francisco, not one mention of the existence <laughs> of the report, of the problem the report was addressing, or of the hearing at the Board of Supervisors. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing yeah. with like a, a propaganda bubble <laughs> on these Yimby talking points to get us excited about how many housing options well-off white people have in San Francisco. Right, right. And a complete silencing of where the working class in San Francisco is going to live. And I think guided by an, an assumption that the market's just going to force them out. And that's what we're up against. Yeah, absolutely insane. Uh, it really struck me earlier when you were talking about how this empty housing tax can work in tandem with Prop I to like gradually move some of these homes to become to to get sold back to the city or or, or to the state and to to become social housing. And uh, yeah, you you listed a variety of different avenues that we can approach to stop trying to uh, tweak the housing market to work in benefit uh, in the benefit of like millionaires out here and to really be in the interest of of the working class. Uh, yeah. Do you have, do you see any other like future steps or, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think what's exciting is like the voters of San Francisco, despite all the, the propaganda and the talking points to try to push people in the direction of like supporting all this real estate speculation, the voters are solid on this. I mean, we, Prop I, I mean, they, they outspent us 20 to one and Prop I passed by like 10 point, you know, or a 10 point margin at the polls. Um, we also had Prop K on the ballot at the same time, which authorized 10,000 units of, of municipal housing passed by the biggest, uh, there were all these measures on the ballot. That one, that one passed with 75% of the vote. I mean, yeah. think about that, like in yeah. a town where, where, you know, a chunk of people are Republican, go Republicans, and of course they're not going to go for this, right? So to yeah. get 75% of voters, Behind behind social housing, I mean, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. The same on the taxes, and it's not just Prop I, right? Like the um, you know we passed Prop C, which is the 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 business tax on on bigger businesses to fund uh, solutions to homelessness. I mean that that passed as well by over sixty percent of the voters, and is bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now we have our battles with you know until we get a more progressive mayor in San Francisco, you yeah. know. We are, we are in this constant battle where even though the voters keep saying, do these things, right? right. Um, the administration still kind of pushes back on them. Yeah. Um, but I would say like the San Francisco voters are there and are ready. I think the socialism is absolutely growing in San Francisco, you know, and, and, and this chapter is really strong and I think has an increasingly important role in the city. Um, and we see coming out of the pandemic, opportunities to fund a lot of these things, not just because of the voters and the ballot measures in San Francisco, but the state uh, money and the federal money, right? And yeah. so some, like when we acquire some of these hotels as a city, some of that money is coming through Project Home Key, which was a state program and in response to uh, to the pandemic and like using funds to buy hotels, right? So some of these things that, I mean, if we were having this conversation five years ago and you asked me like, hey, is the city going to spend like tens of millions of dollars, even if not hundreds of millions, buying properties to get them off the speculative market and make them housing for formerly homeless folks or, you know, or affordable housing of other kinds? I would have been really skeptical about that. And now I feel like we got our barriers, but we got voters and more money, both because of voters passing things and because of state commitments um, 
then we get to show that that works. And I think yeah. in the pandemic, that's what happened. I mean, in the beginning of the pandemic, right? All the, all the shelters closed or most of them, thousands more people on the street. You know, the only thing that improved all the talk about all the problems in San Francisco, the reality is once we started acquiring the, and leasing out hotels as shelter in place hotels, that's the only thing that made a difference mm. for people who were living on the street and for people in the neighborhoods, housed or unhoused, who were frustrated by the situation on the streets, right? We should have done it four times, five times as much as we did. And the Board of Supervisors was pushing and the mayor pushed back. But setting all that debate aside, like any notion that the solution to our problem lies in more free market as opposed to that the solution lies in extreme government intervention, right. in providing the housing, funding the housing to, to get folks off the street. Like, I, I just don't know how people can have lived through the last two years and not see that. Cause it was so, we just, it was, it was a, a controlled experiment almost <laughs> in two years, right? right? And it's like the worst pandemic of a century, but we're the only things that worked. <laughs> We're like the federal government giving money directly to states and the city and a mandate. And then in San Francisco, hundreds of millions of extra dollars because the voters passed progressive taxes on big real estate and big business. Like that was the combo. That's why we had hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's the path. You know, we, we need to be just ramping that up right. in a big way. And that's, and, and honestly, like, that's what the right is so afraid of and the neoliberals are so afraid of. That's why they have to portray San Francisco as this failure. That's why Tucker Carlson every day has to be on TV and, and you know, fake Dr. Schellenberger and all these people, like, they have to trash it and make it a caricature of everything that's failed. Because, because the fact is, if you actually look at the San Francisco experience, the what has worked is what folks from the left have been pushing and right. voters have been behind, right. which is the government coming in and doing what the market will never do, right. which is providing affordable housing for people in San Francisco. Right. And it's it's amazing to think that, like, given how much capitalist propaganda, as, as you were saying earlier, like how much they repeat the same BS talking points, uh, the fact that the voters are so strongly behind this, I mean, it, it's got to be just, uh, as you were saying, like just the intensity of the contradictions that we've been experiencing uh, people seem aware and I guess the momentum's there and the, the, it's just more of a question of just pushing harder and continuing to go in that direction. I but, think so. And, and this is why not just, you know, I mentioned the national kind of attacks on San Francisco and, you know, why that's happening, things that actually caused, you know, our mayor to sort of reverse course on actual change commitments, like yeah. leasing and other stuff. So, you know, that pressure has worked on some folks. Um, the other thing is when you have voters that see through a lot of this, um, you've got to pay close attention to the gerrymandering. So there's redistricting mm, happening right, right now. Of course. And the task force has a map that they've drafted before it. That it's one of these things that you know, only the insiders pay attention to a lot of this stuff, but yeah. they're trying to completely remake the district maps to make sure there's never another socialist supervisor. <laughs> there, there isn't a progressive, like right now there's a majority on the board that prioritizes affordable housing. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is, wow. and there are different shades of left, but, but I think, you know, majority of my colleagues on the board don't just buy that they need to like a, approve without question, every 
high-end development and neglect affordable housing, that it's like they got to be focused on affordable housing. So, you know, that's that's what they're trying to gerrymander now the districts to try to make sure, uh, you know, to, 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 that that doesn't uh, continue and sort of reverse the progress uh, we're making. So I'm, I'm like confident in the voters, but I think right. never underestimate, right, the extent to which uh, capital will go to, to right. prevent the kind of changes that I think voters have been behind and, and you know, in San Francisco uh, decisively. I mean, it's just amazing to think that progressive taxation, especially in this era of like nonstop anti-government, anti-tax rhetoric for years and years and years and getting outspent so massively and still passing every major progressive tax. It, you know, mm-hmm. if it is tailored to tax those with the most in San Francisco, voters are behind it, especially if it's funding affordable housing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not surprising about the uh, <laughs> gerrymandering shenanigans. Uh, but yeah, that's this has all been extremely helpful. Thank you, Dean. I got uh, one last question for you, if, if you don't mind. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little about how your office helped develop this campaign for the empty housing task uh, with, with DSASF. Yeah, I mean, we've been in touch with DSA folks all the way through. I think our office took the lead in asking the budget legislative analyst to study this and okay. then to do a report. And I think that was really helpful in informing it. Um, and then folks at, at DSA have really taken the lead as proponent to the ballot measure in running the campaign. Um, and so we were sort of the, 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 the maybe more like the research and policy brains, you know, in our office, but we work so closely um, with DSASF. And, you know, and I think it, in, I, I'm learning it's, it's unusual. It seems kind of normal to me um, that, you know, our office is my whole staff are activists, you know, uh, most are, are active DSA members, some of in former leadership. So, you know, we, we, we talk pretty regularly and, and uh, you know, with DSA and really try to view ourselves as, you know, sort of the, I guess, political arm uh, <laughs> of, uh, of socialism in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, that, that'll continue. But folks at DSA have really been running with it. You know, Matt McGowan and Shanti and other folks have really been, been running the, the campaign or the official proponents of it have been doing the fundraising and all that. So it's, it's, uh, it's great to see. And that, and that's what we did, you know, we, with prop I, it's also what we did before I took office with prop F, which was the right to counsel. We have the strongest right mm-hmm. to counsel uh, for tenants facing eviction in the country, you know, and that was, you know, DSA and the tenants union really took the lead together in that. So it's been great to see like these, these ballot measures and DSA leading the way on those. Very cool. Very exciting stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Dean. Uh, this has been super helpful. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to seeing how this develops and uh, all all future projects, just seeing these all as like steps towards where we want to go with, you know, social housing and, and making sure that the people are taken care of. Thank you so much, Dean. Excellent. Great talking with you. Great talking with you too.